0: There's something about the idea of a calling, a voice that says, over here, pay attention to this. It insists on itself. Candice Rondeau. There's no short way to introduce my guest today, so you're going to get the whole story, or at least the story of how following her work took me way out of my lane from my day job as a wildlife presenter. It's summer of 2023, June 23rd, 2023 to be precise, and I'm busy minding my own business when all of a sudden there's a breaking news story, a mutiny in Russia, the Wagner Group. Russia's government-funded private army has gone rogue and they're heading to Moscow to rip shit up. So, for a few days, the news cycles are obsessed with this story and are billing this as the answer to all our prayers, the end of the war in Ukraine, the end of Putin. As I watch the rolling news, I take one look at these guys and their leader, the now late Yevgeny Prigozhin, And I'm not so sure these guys look like the good guys. So down the rabbit hole I go and I do a little snooping around on the internet. And in the process, I come across the work of Candice Rondeau, who seems to be everyone's go-to expert on Russian mercenaries. So at this point, I'm just being nosy. I just can't work out how a Chicago-born-and-raised African-American woman becomes an expert in Russian mercenaries and the Wagner Group's activities not just in Ukraine, but worldwide. I discover she learned Russian in high school in the 1980s during the Cold War, She went on to do a bachelor's in Russian affairs, followed by a master's in journalism at NYU, New York University, as well as studying international affairs at Princeton University. She's an award-winning investigative journalist. She's covered everything from mass shootings on U.S. soil to 9-11 to the war in Afghanistan and more. Candice is now professor of practice. And I actually had to look this up, which basically means someone who's earned their stripes from practical experience in a specific field. So a professor of practice at the Center on the Future of War at Arizona State University. She's also senior director of the Future Frontlines program at New America, which, now if I can crunch down what they do, is a think tank that focuses on the digital revolution, the future of democracy and the future of life on Earth as we know it basically. <laughs> so, okay, by now I'm just flailing around, grappling with all these words until I find an anchor point, a single sentence on the New America website. It says, Candace also works on a program which, and I quote, aims to find solutions to the wicked problems posed by digitization and decarbonization in a multipolar world. Whoa. Now, this is a podcast for anyone who cares to listen, but I'm guessing my core audience, that's you, my love, is going to be focused on nature, wildlife, the environment, the climate crisis, and the energy transition. And a lot of what I've been talking about so far might seem unrelated, but I think you're going to be really interested by what Candace has to say. This is not going to be so much a discussion on war and geopolitics, but a glimpse into what someone who works almost completely outside of what I think of as the nature and environmental community has to say about all the things we care about. Not gonna lie, it was pretty daunting at first talking to Candace and knowing where to start even, but eventually we found some common ground. We were both 90s girls and you're gonna have to look this treasure up for the 90s R and B scene to know what I'm talking about. But yeah, we started by reminiscing on the big events and political stories of our formative years. We grew up in very different parts of the world. I was born in Kenya. And then by the time I was a teenager, because my mom worked for the UN, um, I lived in Vienna. So I lived in Austria from the age of 10 till I was 18. And the things I remember about that period, sort of growing up in the 80s and 90s, was well, first of all, like as a kid, just the, sort of, you know, the, the looming threat of nuclear Armageddon, living with a kind of constant threat from the Cold War. There was also the anti-apartheid movement in South Africa. That was actually very present for me because in Vienna, there were quite a few ANC, African National Congress, um, sort of exiles in, living in Vienna at the time. And we were good friends with them. So as a kid, they were just people we hung out with, or my parents hung out with and had a good time with. But I also absorbed a lot of conversations around that. I remember being on a train when we got news of the Berlin Wall, you know, coming down and there was Perestroika, Gorbachev, Reagan, Thatcher, the end of the Cold War, end of apartheid. And so really by the time I was like an emerging adult, I still had that sort of sense of like, you know, the world was energized by all this, what seemed like positive change. It felt like problems could be fixed on a global level. And I honestly just thought, well, you know, we're never going to regress to the bad old days of world wars and wars of ideology and wars over resources. So, you know, my question is like, I'm guessing you tracked along those events as well as you're growing up. So if you could go back to your kind of yourself in your 20s, how would you explain to her how
1: we've ended up where we are now? Oh, well, I wish my, you know, (laughs) the Candace in her 20s was like a little bit more together. Don't we all? Um. (laughs) (laughs) That's hilarious. (laughs) I mean, I mean, I think I I was extremely, I mean, I was extremely active. Uh, I was active since, you know, my teenage years, actually. Uh, I mean, you mean politically politically active, active, yeah, because I mean, engaged, uh, right? More than engaged, oftentimes, like really involved and like genuine, genuinely on the front lines. You know, I, I, Mm -hmm. I was inspired by Gandhi. I was inspired by MLK. I was inspired by Nelson Mandela, you know, around sort of civil disobedience as a means to make change. So like you. I felt like, yeah, like we we with our bodies and our commitment and our passion and our energy can change the world. And of, and of course, like I'm guessing we're kind of close in age, you know, the apartheid, anti-apartheid movement, both in Africa, but outside. And of course, for African-Americans, we were very moved by that. Of course, we were very active in, I think, supporting boycotts and all kinds of things. Right. So there was a connectedness, you know, between us. What I would tell the Candice uh, of that time, you know, in the, I guess uh, when I was in my 20s, is you're really going to have to work harder on, on connecting the dots for people, you know, you know, between the struggle for sort of human dignity, and the ways in which we use resources. Uh, I mean, that's that was always there, but I think you know we were very, yeah. I mean, we were distracted. We we're like, oh, history is ending. I mean, you know, Cold War's over. Peace, peace dividend will accrue. I don't know if I fully cotton that at at the age of you know 20 or 21 or 22, but I would say, you know, I suppose if I was speaking to the generation now that's in their 20s, I think the work ahead, and we see some young people doing this with these lawsuits, right, challenging the right to have a clean environment, the light, the right to live in a world that is not warming, that is makes it possible for people to to live without, you know, weather-related displacement, et cetera, et cetera. So, I mean, A, you know, those 20-somethings now are already stepping into the responsibility, right, of connecting those dots um, between sort of the future of resource dependence uh, and what it means for the world and a warming planet. I think one thing that I've been meditating on a lot lately is consumption and how, we talk about consumption in terms of cars and automobiles, even planes, but there are other types of consumption that are you know, conspicuous consumptions in wealthy nations in particular that make me kind of rethink the way we're all talking about this challenge of decarbonization and the race against time, basically, to decarbonize fast enough so that the shocks and the impact will not be so severe. I think the consumption piece is is undervalued in the conversation or at least not really talked about uh, in in ways that are connecting with the problem. And then there's the the impact of the transition on the workforce itself. So, I'm going to give you a small example and then I'll stop. But recently here in the United States there have been strikes involving the United Auto Workers Union. And one of the most powerful and legendary unions in in our country for sure. And they successfully managed to kind of wrestle with big companies like Ford, um, Stellantis, et cetera, a deal. But their their fundamental complaint and concern was this transition from combustion engines to electric battery-based engines is going to result in a slough-off of, of actual workers. There's just not enough components, basically, to to justify the kind of plant arrangements that we have now. And so their argument was we need job security. We don't want this energy transition to result in you know the dislocation of more workers. It's already been challenging in this industry. This is a tipping point um, for a lot of industries out there that are going to have to now switch over from fossil fuel generated energy to battery powered energy. And I don't think the world's ready for it. And we're not really talking about the implications. So those are kind of the three things I would say is changing our consumption habits, you know, yeah. and looking at the ways in which climate change is already transforming and impacting the workforce, and then the ways in which the transition to a just energy transition, basically, will ultimately require us to rethink whole industries and the way people work. If
0: you were trying to explain what your life looks like now to Candace, 20 year old Candace in the 90s. And frankly, I actually thought the 90s was not bad. You know, it was not bad time to be alive. I wonder what you would say, like, how are you going to explain how much more stuff we have? <laughs> and based on, you know, where we're trying to head, we're trying to do this big energy transition without addressing how much we use. And, and when I say we, I should be more way more specific, because that's not equal around the face of the earth. So I don't know if there's anything that you can pa- unpack around that.
1: Absolutely. So this is where the, the, the link between digitization and decarbonization comes in, for, for me, in my mind. I look at my house today, uh, and I've, I've been one of these kind of like, oh, I'm scared of robots. I don't really want to have them in my house. But increasingly, there are automated things that I find extremely useful. The older I get, the more useful these types of things are. Uh, and of course, there's obviously an acceleration in the capacity of automated technologies to, to solve human problems, right? To, to make you, you know, stronger in some ways, you know, assist you, give you superhuman powers, et cetera, et cetera. So that alone is a new consumption pattern that we haven't really factored. When we're talking about, you know, the transition and adaptation... Look, I mean, the the more automated gadgets that we use and and even sort of tie together via the Internet of Things, that requires compute power, which requires server power. Okay, and server power requires electricity. You know, when it comes down to it, we are adding more stuff, right, to the to the load. And Mm -hmm. on the one hand, these creature comforts, particularly in the wealthy nations, right? So in the United States, we are notorious. Okay for leaving lights on, having crazy, elaborate displays of lights, letting things like escalators run all night, which is just insane. You know, it's like, why what's happening? <laughs> you know, like at, at one o'clock in Washington, d c, nobody's on the metro, so why is that escalator running? <laughs> you know? uh, yeah, you know we're no- we're notoriously wasteful here. And so if you want to be like this really advanced society that re- relies on more and more automated technologies, And yet at the same time, you want to solve the problem of the energy transition, right? And the need to mitigate as well as adapt to the effects of climate change. You are going to need to think about offsetting some of these consumption habits. You're going to need to really rethink like, okay, if we want to have robots in our houses all the time, running everything, maybe we don't run the escalators 24-7, Right? But I don't see city councils in the United States, with some exceptions, okay, like California is its own republic, practically, uh, when it comes to these kinds of questions. But for the most part, you can see that what we're grappling with here, politically, uh, Texas is a fantastic example, oil producing state, the entire economy has been sort of, has run around oil production, gas production. And I mean, it's big, it's extremely important to the economy of that state. And a lot of the battles over empowering people to have renewables and to change the, the grid, right? Adapt the grid so that it can withstand shocks from the weather, but also transfer energy loads, either from renewables or fossil fuel generated power, basically, right? A lot of limitations there. And these fights that we're having at the state level, and I'm just talking about the United States, that's what I know well they're precipitating battles over the future of democracy. That's literally what's happening. And so I guess what I would say is to, you know, the 20 year old me is like, you, you don't know this, but you're gonna be using a lot of robots <laughs> and you're gonna to have to think yeah. about how to balance that. But the second thing I wanna point out is something that's really, this is more future, more now than future, which is um, digital currencies, okay? This has been a big debate, right? One, some rogue states find it convenient, right, to get off of the dollar system uh, and move on to other systems for cashiering, right, and transferring funds and so forth and so on. And so digital currencies are becoming interesting ways for rogue states to to experiment, right, with sanctions busting um, sort of habits and, and use. However, also, like, regular states are also thinking about creating stable coins, right, that are generated from their central banks. This requires a lot of compute power, and therefore a lot of server power, and therefore a lot of electricity. And we saw at the beginning of the war between Russia and Ukraine, Kazakhstan, China, these are major places where digital currency is processed, right? They said no more, or they started to restrict it. Because the enormous amounts of electricity uh, that are needed to mine coins, transfer information, all of that requires a lot of server power, again, more electricity. Most of us have woken up to
0: the idea that where and how we spend our money can be our loudest vote. But what about where we keep our money, who we bank with? According to the Consumer Association, UK high street banks are amongst the worst culprits when it comes to financing fossil fuels, arms companies, and all the stuff we don't think of when we talk about positive change. Triodos Bank has been blazing a trail for the financial sector in ethical and sustainable banking for over 40 years. With almost three quarters of a million customers, it looks like there are a lot of people out there who want to know that their money is not propping up all the wrong things and instead supporting all the right things. Named eco-provider by which, Triodos refuses to lend to fossil fuel projects, focusing instead on renewable energy, nature regeneration, and community projects. Triodos' aim is simple. To be a safe and secure bank for your money, while being totally transparent with what they do with your money. I honestly could not be happier to have them as a sponsor of If I Rule the World. So... (laughs) Like if I'm understanding this right, we're trying to solve, you know, a, a legacy problem of fossil fuels and creating a whole new one that may be even more energy demanding. So, <laughs> I mean, uh, you know, it, you know, my twenty-year-old self would be like, actually, my 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 now year old self is thinking the same thing. Forty-nine-year-old self is thinking like, what? <laughs> so, Candice, like you, you work at a very high level in terms of strategy with politicians and policymakers, all that stuff. Do you think people are having the right conversations behind closed doors about this? You know, I'm hoping that, you know, this isn't sort of like a blind spot for basically the key decision makers in the world. You know, is this a blind spot or is there full awareness of this?
1: No, no, no. It's a huge, I mean, this is a huge blind spot. And there are several reasons why that blind spot exists. One is just like, conceptualizing everything that we just discussed is not so easy. Like you really have to sit back and think about the connectedness of industrial change and social change. I think if you sit back and you start to understand, you examine your own habits, the habits of your community, et cetera. Yes. The conceptualization becomes easier. Right. But there are some other reasons why I think, you know, the blind spot is there. Here, here are a couple ones. Mm-hmm. One the conversation so far about the link between a just energy transition and the leaps that we're going to make in terms of digitization, the requirements uh, of, of, sort of industrial change and social change of decarbonization, that conversation right now is, for the most part, dominated by the global north. Um, the global mm-hmm. south, if we we're going to say, I mean, it's not like an even, you know, some people don't like those terms, but right now it's it's an easy way to just talk about the division between wealthy nations and developing nations or even sort of medium developing countries, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, leaving aside the caveats about how we don't like those, that terminology, global South, global North, the people at the table discussing solutions, resolutions are predominantly from wealthy states. They're setting, they're setting the agenda. They're setting the terms and what has been happening is a lot of pushback. You know, it's it's been interesting to see so many, one, island nations that are extremely vulnerable, kind of banding together, right? The vulnerable 20. Uh, you know, we've also seen the G77. So these are, you know, lower and middle income developing countries have banded together and, and sort of said, look, there's more of us than you, <laughs> right? And so listen to what we're saying. So one of the challenges is just like, who is at the table setting the agenda? And right now, unfortunately, it's still, it's still the global north and wealthy nations that are determining the pathways here. They're saying, you know, what matters, what doesn't matter, what's a priority, what's not a priority. And they're ignoring the noise uh, of the street right now. And it's everywhere, right? We're seeing it materialize in the form of migration patterns. We're seeing it materialize in the form of political protests. We're seeing it even, you know, materialize in the form of revanchism, sort of, you know, authoritarianism. All of those things seem really abstract to the type of people who are sitting around the table in New York at the UN having these discussions, you know, or in Washington, again, or in Brussels. And they're not getting out there. They don't go out to Kenya and say like, hey, what are you thinking? And it's not, it's not, it's just, it's not a dialogue. It's basically a dictum. Yeah.
0: Well, I mean, to be honest, like it's, I don't even know if it's restricted to, you know, wealthy nations and poorer nations because, I mean, yes, I'm Kenyan, but I live in Cornwall in the UK. And when I walk into a supermarket, I mean, you know, this isn't the the biggest hardship, although in the moment, I promise you it is when I'm dealing with those self-checkout things, Um, the frustration levels, but you know, I often think to myself, like, nobody asked for this. So for me, there's a real lack of agency for, for most people, irrespective of where they are. It seems like there's very little agency in terms of what we get, who gets to say whether we want AI to reach every aspect of life. But I've been asking a lot about what would you say to your 20 year 20 year old self, but you know, you are we are here, in, here now, and I'm asking this of every guest, you know, Candice, if you ruled the world, what would you do?
1: Well. <laughs> okay, um, here we go. <laughs> <laughs> Gosh, what would I do? If I ruled the world, well, I, I, I would know better than to think I could just do it on my own, right? I, I mean, I, I think mm-hmm. first, the first thing I would do is try and assemble people to help me. <laughs> with the ruling of the world, you can't, you know, uh, it's not a I I alone can fix it kind of scenario, right? <laughs> the most, Im- most important thing is like, really understand your limitations, right? But I guess some things that are kind of on my laundry list to fix or prioritize, they really do center around helping new leaders of industrial change come to the fore. Okay, so what do I mean by that? For the last decade, we've heard nothing but this, that, and the other thing about Elon Musk, uh, Mark Zuckerberg, you know, these kind of like Jeff Bezos, blah, blah, blah. And whatever, you know, good on them. They're, they're, they're doing something. They're, they're making change. I'd like to see more ethical people leading industrial change, people who are more concerned about the, the impacts on humans and on the ecosystems that they live in people who are really thinking through, not just scare scenarios with the singularity where computers take over the world because of artificial intelligence advancements. A, I think you need to understand that this is going to be death by a thousand cuts. Every change, every innovation in artificial intelligence, every innovation in in digital technology will ultimately lead to human change and therefore environmental change. So I, I really want to see new leaders who take that as gospel, and not just industrial leaders, but also political leaders, community leaders, activists. I want them to really understand that it truly will be death by a thousand cuts, this transition. And if we're not careful, if we're not centering kind of our, our moral compass on the preservation of a balanced ecosystem, where humans can continue to exist without um, exacerbating already, you know, big extinctions in, in other populations, animal populations, plant populations. Yeah, that's it. I mean, that's, that's got to be the goal. That has got to be the center of uh, the way we organize our politics, the way we organize our corporations, the way we organize our communities. Um, we really have to be more conscious In your work, you know,
0: in in between studying private armies and war and geopolitics and digitization, do you have time to even think about like, you know, do you have things like a favorite landscape, a favorite, you know, natural space, a favorite animal, any of those? Do you have time for that?
1: Oh, yeah. So I love cycling. I love I love DC because it's, you know, people don't really know, like they always see these big marble buildings and everything. But it's like super green here. And and the city, you know, does well with creating green spaces and cultivating that and encouraging people to go out. So we have just enormous, you know, miles and miles and miles of of bike trails all along the Anacostia and Potomac River. That is by far for me, like the most life giving, energizing landscape that it's close by. But also really close by are the Shenandoah Mountains, which is part of the Appalachian Mountain Trail here. It's a wonder to kind of wander through that space, you know, things that just surprise you, waterfalls that jump out, creeks, sheer cliffs, mountaintops, a beautiful flora and fauna. For me, you know, kind of, I guess, uh, there's no place like home. Home. A really great place. And thank you so much, Candice. Thank you.
0: So I began this episode with a very enigmatic quote from Candice about paying attention to and engaging with the things that we don't immediately think involve us. She describes this mindset as paying attention to the insistent voice that calls from the sidelines saying, over here, pay attention to this. And it is one of the reasons why I really wanted to get Candace on this podcast, because I really don't think we can afford to stay in our lanes any longer. I see it like a game of join the dots, a trail that leads to seeing a bigger picture. And from where Candace is looking, it sounds to me like some things aren't quite adding up. Her closing thoughts flag up the inconsistency between forging ahead with the digital revolution, the fourth industrial revolution, call it what you will, and the quantum leap that's going to be required in terms of resources and energy demands to keep up with this. While at the same time, trying to save the planet. It begs the question, are we ignoring the elephant in the room? That the energy demands of our 21st century lifestyle, where we can get virtually anything we want delivered to the door within a single turn of the earth at the click of a button. Trust me, the irony that this is also what makes doing this podcast possible isn't lost on me. It makes me think of the battle days. Before recycling was a thing. And we would throw stuff away until we realized there is no such thing as a way. Even if it's out of sight on the other side of the planet, all this stuff comes from somewhere and eventually has to go somewhere. And I think it's same old story, new technology. All the data, all the photos we take, all the messages, the clicks, the likes, the shares, all of it takes energy. And the scale of it really comes to life for me with this statistic. Collectively, we spent 1.3 billion years using the internet in 2021 alone. That's according to a state of digital report, and the numbers show this trend is only accelerating. So that's one idea, one thought, big ideas. So let's just park that to one side. I also found it really interesting that in the face of all of this, Candace homed in on what I call Earth's billionaire problem. Now, I watched Elon Musk's recent and now viral Go Fuck Yourself interview with the New York Times Deal Book Summit. And to be honest, it's actually really worth a watch. It was a really funny moment because it's both fascinating and revealing, especially where he talks about his worries for the future of humanity. Because as he sees it, the fate of our species is limited to one planet and he thinks we need to become an interplanetary species. My first thought when I heard this was, someone clearly doesn't have enough to worry about because, correct me if I'm wrong, but I'm not sure this is the number one preoccupation of the vast majority of us living on this planet right now. But just a few days later, I found myself looking up at a very beautiful, very crisp, clear night sky with the sickle moon about to dip down into the southern horizon and a very bright Saturn following just behind. And in that moment, I had just a little flavor of what it's like to be the kind of person that looks up at the stars and thinks, I want to go there. Maybe in 10 generations' time, maybe there'll be some humans living out there in space somewhere, thanking Musk for his foresight and ambition. But what about us, living here now? Shouldn't we get to have a say in the future and how it's being shaped? What do you think? As always, I'd love to hear from you via Spotify's Q&A. You can email me on podcast at com. If you're enjoying If I Rule the World, don't forget to hit the follow button to get notified of new episodes, which go out every other week you can leave a review, you can rate the podcast. Oh my God, it sounds like so many things, like it's a whole job. So you know what? You could also just do something the old-fashioned way and just tell a friend, a colleague, a family member about the podcast, especially if you think they're going to enjoy it and get some value out of it. And you know what? While you're at it, maybe ask them, if you rule the world, what would you do? Thanks for listening.